Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. And this has an impact on every area of our lives, doesn't it? But it also has an impact on money. And I promise you one thing, I am not here on this gift day to pressure you into giving for the good of our church finances. I'm here shamelessly instead seeking to inspire you for your own good, to take seriously and to believe God's word and to live by it in what it says about money. And that's for your good. Okay, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. This is part of our series on some of the New Testament churches. We're looking this morning at the Macedonian churches. Uh, Paul showed us Galatians last week. Could we just have the map, um, Phil, please? There we are. Paul showed us Galatia last week over there in what is now Turkey. And we're looking at Macedonia. That's the northern bit of Greece. Uh, above Corinth, to whom this letter is written, written to the Corinthians, but the Macedonians feature. Now, it's a bit of a cheat to say we're going to look at the Macedonian churches. You can say, oh, well, there's no letter to them from Paul in the Bible, is there? Well, there are, in fact, three, because Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he wrote two to the Thessalonians, and there they are at the top in Macedonia, in a, yeah, Philippi and Thessalonica. Clearly, there were more than just those two churches. But the background to our passage today Paul has, for several years, been working on a collection amongst the Gentile churches that he's founded and ministered to, to help the mother church in Jerusalem, where there was a lot of suffering because of famine. And he's already given instructions in his first letter to the Corinthians about how they should do this. And he's visited both Macedonia and Corinth before. And as so often, there's a little bit of rivalry between, between neighbours, these two regions of what is now Greece, Macedonia in the north and Achaea, in the south where Corinth is. And Corinth in many ways is he was a showcase church in the big city, the place where the, the urban professionals live. And they embraced this, this idea about the collection and they started off really well, but since then they've gone off the boil, they haven't followed through. Whereas Macedonia, out in the provinces up north, not well healed at all, they've come out trumps in the manner of their wholehearted giving. So let's read from these two chapters, shall we? Chapter 8. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything in faith and in speech and in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. 
Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Let me skip to chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has freely scattered his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's from Psalm 112, talking about the man who fears the Lord. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Wonderful. Now, you see, we're used, aren't we, to collections of one sort or another. We have them in church or in the street or whether it's poppy day or on the news there's been some earthquake or some flooding or famine and the disaster emergencies committee launch an appeal. Now, I'm certainly no expert, but I'm guessing it was far more unusual a thing in Paul's day. This wasn't part of the culture. So you've got a collection for another race in a foreign country, 800 miles away. That's as the crow flies or the ship sails. When your own life is plenty hard enough where you are, thank you very much. And Paul, no doubt, is motivated both by the genuine need in Jerusalem, but also by this chance to demonstrate that we're God's new people. Gentile and Jew, we're one in Christ, that we're genuinely brothers. What a great thing if the Gentiles give to the Jews. And the extraordinary thing is the degree to which these poor Macedonian churches embraced it. Look at the text. In verse 2, it says they were in the midst of a very severe trial. Now, we don't know exactly what that was, but probably from the language, it was some sort of persecution. Literally, it's a severe test consisting of afflictions. And Paul also talks in his first letter to the Thessalonians in Macedonia. He says, in spite of your severe suffering. So they could have said, look, Paul, we understand, but we've got quite enough to cope with already. Could you just, just leave us out of it, would you? Just maybe next year, but give us a break. Secondly, verse 2, it says, they were in a place of extreme poverty. Literally translated, it's down to the depth poverty. Right at the bottom. It's, an ex- it's extreme. They weren't just a little hard up. Verse 3 says they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So it wasn't just a little bit that perhaps they had spare they could afford to give. No, no, no. They went further. They gave what they couldn't afford. Not because they were being reckless or they, they didn't realize. No, no. It was a calculated, deliberate choice. And verse 4, it says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of taking part in this service. It was their spontaneous desire. They begged Paul to let them take part, viewing it as a privilege. Wow. And Paul goes on in a few verses' time to compare their desire to give with the Corinthians. 
And we might, in a few verses' time, we might read about the Corinthians, tap, 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 we might say. But you have to think, gosh, how would we, how would I measure up against that sort of commitment to giving? That's a pretty high bar they set. So we could ask, what has caused this willingness on their part, this extraordinary desire to give, to help people so far away from them that they don't know and will almost certainly never meet? Well, there's a big clue in the text, and it's this word. It's the word grace. This word comes ten times in these two chapters, and five times just in these few verses that you see here. We want you to know, Paul says, about the grace God has given the Macedonian church's grace. It's not an easy word to translate from the Greek. The Greek word is charis, and the core idea of it is favour. God freely extending his favour. God reaching out to people in kindness to them. And it's the same root as the word charisma. Talking about the gifts of the spirit that work in the charismatic church. And those gifts, they're they're God's favour. The operation, the working of his grace amongst us. There's different nuances here. But privilege in verse 4, it's the same word. It's the grace, charis in the Greek. But what does it mean, God's favour is at work? It means the spirit is operating in kindness, in blessing. There's a dynamic going on. That's what God has given the Macedonian churches. This extraordinary generosity is the work of the spirit amongst them. There's a supernatural spiritual dynamic at work here. That's what it means. God has given them grace. And then you think, "Ah, okay, so it makes a bit more sense. So that's why they responded the way they did. It wasn't just that they were very kind people. No, no, no. They were responsive to the spirit of God. God was speaking to them. His spirit was stirring their hearts. And they were quick to hear, quick to receive, quick to obey. I went to the doctor a couple of weeks ago. I had made my left ear very sore. And I got it in a right old state. Because I had this urge that I do not always restrain to try to remove earwax with the end of a Bic pen top. (laughs) Now, I know that this is a very unwise thing on a number of levels, but I do it anyway. Now, for a while, my left ear was not only very sore, but it was also bunged up with mucky wax. Did you know when you do that, you actually stimulate wax production. You make it all the more. Anyway, I couldn't hear very well. It was all muffled up. And then I realised that actually both my ears were like that. Because that's what my right ear is like all the time. And if I'm in bed and I've got my head on the pillow like that, I can't hear Pauline properly if she's talking to me. And I, I won't tell you which way I not go there. But anyway, so when my left ear had calmed down and was back to normal, I went to the doctor about my right ear. And he looked at both, and sure enough, that one was fine. But the right ear had a layer of wax, a hard crust covering the eardrum, impacted down. And he said, well, when you scrape away, you see, you you might scrape wax from the sides of the ear, but at the same time, you're pushing it down in the middle. So the right ear is muffled all the time. I can't hear properly because of the wax. Anyway, the treatment is to lie on your side twice a day, 10 minutes and put drops of olive oil in the ear and you lie there with the olive oil in the ear. And what it does, the oil soaks in and it softens the wax and it loosens it up. And after a week or two or three, the wax should be softened sufficiently that it will actually come out of its own accord. Or if it doesn't, you can go and have it sucked out by microsuction. <laughs> and then you'll be able to hear properly. Now, now, that is a picture of what our spiritual ears can be like, or what a heart can be like. See, we may have received the gospel. We're born again. We have a new heart. 
but we can very easily become crusted over, bunged up with all the gunk that this world produces, the attitudes and the behavior and the messages and the values that are all around us. And let's be honest, that come from inside us as well. So God has done a work. We've got spiritual ears that can hear his truth. We've a born again heart that can respond to him. But those ears can become blocked up enough that his voice, the spirit's promptings are muffled. We hear him. Oh, yes, we do hear him, but but not properly. We, we, We don't get it. We don't see the good news that the gospel is. We don't receive his spirit with joy so we can work freely in our hearts and lives. There may be little fruit. But if we do allow him to work on us, if the grace of God is given to us as to the Macedonians, when there's a spiritual dynamic of God at work that we can embrace, And his spirit can soak in to the hard crust, the gummed up wax, can soften it, loosen it and remove it. And it doesn't even have to take three weeks. It can happen very quickly. And then suddenly we can hear again. We get it. His gospel, the word of truth, it's life to us. It's not drudgery and obligation. It brings joy when we embrace it. And we can be like the Macedonians where there was an extraordinary work of the spirit, an extraordinary grace. It could be regarding money, how freely we give. It could be our willingness to serve without caring about recognition. It could be the selflessness of our relationships. It could be anything. But whether it's quick or whether it's gradual, boy, does he make a difference when the spirit removes the wax from our spiritual ears or the scales from our eyes or the, the encrusted gunk around our heart. We realize again the sheer goodness of God, the wonder of his forgiveness, the enormity of his love. We want to obey him, to give him free reign in our lives. Boy, when the spirit moves deeply in our hearts, it can't help but show in our behavior, even in what we do with our money. That's the grace of God he gives us by his spirit. Produces extraordinary, wonderful results, as in Macedonia when we receive it. And Paul says to the Corinthians, Verses 6 to 11, he says, come on, guys. I'm looking at the Macedonians, I'm looking at you. Come on, see the comparison. What's going on last year? You're the first, not only to give, but to want to give. Now finish the work, he says. Bring to completion, what does he say, verse 6? What do you bring to completion? Bring to completion this act of grace on your part. Only there's an extra word in the text that's not in the NIV. What he actually says is, bring to completion this same grace as regards you. The same grace is at work in the Macedonians. Just as you excel in so many things, Corinthians, see to it that you excel in this grace, this supernatural work of the Spirit as regards giving. So you see, it's not just the Macedonians who can do it. The Spirit was at work in the same way in Corinth. The same grace through the same Spirit, initially with the same results. And even though now their spiritual ears have got waxed up and their hearts are crusted and they've become worldly in the question of money, Paul says, come on, guys, you can still do it. The same Spirit can complete the same work of grace in you now if you let him. You can finish the job. And just maybe, he might say the same to some of us. Or all of us. Come on, Julian. Remember when you were so full of me that you'd have done anything, you'd have gone anywhere, served anyhow, and you'd have given so much so freely? When's the last time you gave generously out of joy? You know, you used to be so ready. Now you're so jolly sensible about it. Too sensible. All you see are the reasons not to give and not to give too much, to be careful. No, no, the Spirit's still here. 
Let me stir you again. Let me move in you again. Let me remove your earwax again. And then whatever else you do, you can excel again in this grace of giving. Well, you may say, hey, look, I just feel like I'm a long way from that. Sounds like a good idea, but that is just not where I am in my heart, if I'm honest. Okay, well, that's okay, because Paul gives us some really practical instructions about how and why we can move from being where the Corinthians were at this point. We can move from needing to be spurred on like they were. We can move to how they started out, and we can move to how the Macedonians were. We can make that change. Here's how. Firstly, he says, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the supernatural work of his favor towards you shown in Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, it always starts at the cross. That God came as a man, that he chose to be nailed to the cross and to die, to pay the price for your sins, so that you could come to know the Father as a forgiven child, to receive his love. Freely you have received, Jesus said, so freely give. We can think on the cross. Think about his love, his sacrifice. Spirit, show me again the price he paid to make me rich. Soak me, Holy Spirit. Soften me again in the truth and the wonder of it. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Remind me, Spirit, of the dark poverty that enslaved me before his light burst in to set me free, before the dungeon filled with light, as the hymn says. And then you remember, like the Macedonians, and then you give yourself, you see? You give yourself, first of all, to the Lord. It's always that way. Whoever the human recipient is, you give yourself first to the Lord. First and foremost, it's always for him. Okay, so having done that, Let's assume we're in a good place from that. How does it work, this grace of giving? How did the Macedonians do it? Come on, Paul, enough of that spiritual stuff. Let's be practical now. Come on, what do we do? Okay, chapter 8, verse 11. Firstly, you give according to your means, he says. If the willingness is there, verse 12, the gift is acceptable according to what you have. It's not measured against what you don't have. See, in God's eyes, it's not about the actual amount of money. It's about the willingness of your heart. You remember the widow with the two copper coins. What did Jesus say? She gave more than all the rest. It's about your heart and your faithfulness. Don't put yourself down if you can only give a few pounds. That can be a big gift in heaven's accounting. Secondly, he says... Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. So you weigh it up. You come to a considered decision. You ask the Lord to give you wisdom, maybe even to know his promptings. And then you decide and you do it. You don't decide and then not do it like the Corinthians. Been there. And if that means that you start small, if that is where your heart is and your faith is, then fine. Start there. And don't compare yourself with anybody else because it's between you and God. Thirdly, verse 7, he says, don't give reluctantly. See, I said it's not the money God's after, it's your heart. The money means nothing if you're not genuinely willing. When your kids do something you've asked them to do through gritted teeth and with dragging of heels and a scowl that could scare sheep, it doesn't do a lot for you, does it? 
Put bluntly, if you're not doing it willingly, it doesn't count. So only give as much as you can give willingly. Now, just one caution. I'm not saying the Lord won't challenge you. I'm not saying he won't stretch you beyond your comfort zone. In fact, I'm sure he will. As someone has said, when you're listing what to give, it's the first number you think of. That's the one the Spirit's prompting you to give before you rationalise it and cut it down to half of something far more sensible. No, no, no. He will challenge you. But there's a difference between considering and accepting that challenge in faith, though it's hard, that's still willingly. That's different from doing it reluctantly. The first will do you a lot of good and the second won't. Okay, fourthly, verse 7. He says, don't give under compulsion. Now again, godly people may challenge you, but nobody has the right to force you to give, to emotionally manipulate you, to bully you, or to scare you into giving. If you can't honestly say it's your free choice, then don't do it. That's pretty practical, right? Okay, so now, here comes the glorious bit, the wonderfully liberating bit, the bit that God intends to help you so that you're able to give willingly and generously and still come up smiling at the end of it. Let's look at verse 8. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Wow, what a promise. What a statement. I just want to change three words there. He says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Now, is able. That sounds like, well, I know he can do it if he chooses to. He could do it. He's able. But will he? Well, that's not the sense of the text. What the text actually says is, he's got the power. It's a strong affirmation. He's able to bless you. Do you know that word bless here? It's actually that same word again. It's that same word charis in the Greek. It's that word grace. The spiritual dynamic of his favor extended towards us. There's a dynamic at work in this. And the word abundantly, the actual root meaning of the word is to overflow. So we could say God is powerful to make his grace overflow in you so that you also will overflow in all good works. And did you hear it was read? It said... In all things, at all times, having all that you need, in all good work, for alls. So this is a massive statement of God's power, his overflow, his total sufficiency for you in every situation where he calls you to give. God's grace at work in you ensures that your needs are met and that you overflow in giving in all things, at all times, in all good works. See, there's a cycle here. You give. He blesses. You have what you need. Not all that you want, but you have what you need. And you overflow to others. And then you repeat. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say even more. He says, God will supply and increase your store of seed. And he will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. Now that means... The righteousness, that's the good things that you have done in God's eyes. The credit, if you like, in your account with him, that one day he will repay back with great interest. But there's an expansion that goes on. You give, he blesses, and as a result, you have even more seed to sow than you did last time. And your harvest of righteousness is greater. And so it goes on, and so it goes on. As long as you're faithful, so is he faithful. And there's an expansion. Verse 11 repeats the same promise again in a different way. You will be enriched in every way 
so that you can be generous on every occasion. So three times, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, he repeats essentially the same promise, the same dynamic, because he means it, because he wants them to get it. Because when you do get it, it sets you free to give and to be generous. And, you know, you can walk around these promises. You can look at them from all the angles. You can try and see the catch. But there isn't one. So tell me, what's not to like about that, eh? That's how you can be the cheerful giver that God loves. As he says in verse 7, like the Macedonians were. That's how. There's just two things necessary, I think, for you to be a glad and cheerful, willing giver with a smile on your face. Firstly, it's gratitude for what God has done for you through Christ, as we've looked at. And secondly, it's confidence in the promise of God for his all-sufficient provision. Now, you might say to me, so isn't this the prosperity gospel then? What's different from the televangelist saying, you know, send me a thousand dollars and you'll get your new car, you'll get that big house you've always wanted. How is this different? Well, God doesn't promise to make you richer. The point isn't that I get a bigger, whatever it is, wine cellar, better house, bigger car. No, no, that's not the point. The text in verse 11 doesn't say you'll be enriched so that you will get rich. No, he says, you're enriched in every way so that you can be generous. That's the point. It's not for you to keep, it's for you to give away. Your harvest that he increases isn't a harvest of money that your seed has grown. It's a harvest of righteousness. That's eternal credit before God for good deeds done in faith. Your generosity comes back to you as a harvest of righteousness that God will surely bless and reward because that's what he does with righteousness. But it may not be earthly riches. Better if it's not, in fact, treasure in heaven really is the best of the lot. So it is a prosperity gospel of a sort. But the main currency of that prosperity is not earthly riches, but it's heavenly blessing. Your needs will be met, that is a promise, And through the Lord's hand, good will come to you in all sorts of ways, both on earth and in heaven. And it may well include financial blessing in this life. It will certainly include the joy of giving, of being in ever-increasing measure a blessing to others, and in knowing his favor on your life. But if you're only giving to get rich, then don't bother. If this sounds attractive, I hope it does. If this sounds attractive, you might say, okay, so what do I do now? I've never really been very generous, to be honest. In fact, quite the opposite. Editors note, just like the rest of us, join the club. So how can I change? Where do I start? Well, it's not a book. It's not a DVD to watch. There's not a course you go on. It's much simpler than that. The cure for an ungenerous heart is one thing. Give. Try it. Choose it. Do it. The start button for this cycle of giving and blessing in your life is in your hands. God put it there. Whether you've got a little or a lot, doesn't matter. Just start where you are and give. Do something generous and ask God to change your heart and to give you the things you truly need most. 
And Paul says, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, remember this. He says, listen up. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Again, it's in your hands. If you want to reap a lot of blessing, sow a lot of generosity as your seed. And let me just very gently turn this around the other way and just suggest something. If you're not reaping much, if you don't see much evidence of God's blessing on your life, if your needs are not being met, can I just ask you how much you're sowing? I'm not saying that is definitely the reason. All I'm saying is examine yourself before God because scripture says there is a correlation, you see, between what you sow and what you reap. So all I'm saying is that could be something to do with it. I'm just asking the question. Because after all, Jesus says something almost identical, doesn't he, in Luke 6. Give, Jesus says, again, there's the start button in your hands. Give, and if you do, as a result, give, and it will be given to you. Not stingily either, but generously, he says, a full measure overflowing into your lap. And he says this, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying? And if you give a full measure to God, whatever that might be for you in your situation, if you give a full measure, he will most certainly give you a very full measure back. But you choose, he says, it's up to you. Let me just talk now to us here today in this church on the occasion of this gift day. Paul spoke three weeks ago about our vision. Uh, And if you weren't here three weeks ago, do listen online. And he brought us this scripture from Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now we will keep doing the first things there as we always have done, as we've done for years. We'll minister to the Lord in worship. We will look after one another as God's people. We will love one another as family. But to us in these days, God says, that's not enough on its own. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And when Paul shared that scripture with the elders a few weeks ago, something went off inside me. See, there's an urgency about it, isn't there? There's an urgent desire in God's heart. I want you to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The furthest reaches of Amisham and Chesham, the outermost parts of Chalfont and beyond. You won't be the only ones doing it, but I do want you to do it. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. To save them from death, from God's righteous anger, from condemnation. To save them from emptiness and hopelessness and despair, from captivity to sin. He came to save because God is not willing that any should perish. But rather he's calling them to repentance and to himself. That's his heart. And as Paul said three weeks ago, that is to be a hallmark of what we are to be about in the days ahead. To bring his salvation to the lost. And if you were here two weeks ago, you heard Neil Bartlett share how God woke him up vividly one night with a scripture from Acts 18. I have many people in this city. I had that scripture myself some years ago, not in the same way that Neil received it. But thinking about our move up from the old town to this place, 
this conviction. We're a sent people. We're on mission. That's why we're here. And it says in Acts 18, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you because I have many people in this city. We don't know who they are. They don't know who they are, but God does. And as we speak and as we reach out in love, we reveal them, we uncover them, the ones God is calling, the ones he's got his hand on, the ones he has marked from the beginning of time as his own. It's like that card game, you know, palmalism or pears. You know, you turn over cards. You know, you're looking for, is that one under there? No, not under there. Try this. Is that one under there? No, not that one. Is it under that? Got it. Yes. And as we bring God's word, as we turn over the cards of people's lives, we discover, yes, God's calling that one. God's been speaking to that one. God's bringing that one into his kingdom. We don't know who, so we have to bring his word and his love to everybody so that we can uncover as many as possible, find them, the many people he has in this place. That's what we're to be about in this church in these days. Now, what's that got to do with the gift day? Well, there's a parable in Luke 16. Jesus tells a parable. There's a dishonest manager whose boss is giving him the sack. So just before it happens, he goes around all the people who owe his boss money. And he says, quick, let's change your account. What does it say? You owe 800. Great. Okay, let's just tiddle the keys. Let's just change that online. Right, it's 400 now. How's that? You owe him what? You owe him 1,000. All right, let me just get in your account up. Okay, 800. Keep it quiet. Just us. So he makes friends, this dishonest manager, so that after he's sacked, and he might be struggling... He'll have people who owe him one, people who will help him in return, people give him a roof over his head. That's pretty crafty, Jesus said. He says, actually, that's what the people of this world are like. They're pretty shrewd, pretty crafty, pretty canny in dealing with the things of this world. Then he says, you, you people of light, you should be like that with this corrupt stuff called worldly wealth. It's not worth a bean in the long term, but you can be clever with it. You can be wise with it. In a similar way, you can use it while you have it. You can use it to gain friends who one day will welcome you into eternal homes. You can use it for an eternal payback, if you like. That's that's wise, isn't it? See, if if we give money, if you give money to the ministry of this church, and if we fulfill our mandate to save the lost, among other things, then your money will gain for you, Jesus says, friends in eternity. Those who have been saved through the ministry of this church that you've financed. Those who in heaven will wrap their arms around you and say, thank you, thank you for giving what you did. It's so great to see you. Be wise, Jesus says. Do something eternal with your money while you have it, because you ain't got it for long. See, we'd love to appoint an evangelist one day. That's one thing Paul has mentioned. Someone not to do the work of outreach, but someone to help us, to equip us to do the work of outreach effectively. Well, maybe we can. If we get enough money in the budget, that's one of the things we'd like to do, one of the aspirations. But I know this. When you give to the Lord, you're doing something eternal with your money. And we want to win souls. You remember that Schindler's List clip that Neil played the other week? You know, Schindler had done so much. But then as the war ends just finished he's consumed with remorse and regret i could have done more he says they say to him you did so much he says but i could have done more this could have saved another one this could have saved another two 
Now, when you stand in glory, there will be no time or place for remorse or regret. But there may be an awareness. You may think, I might think, gosh, I could have done more. What was I thinking? Why didn't I believe his promises that he'd look after me? I can see now they're all true. Why didn't I trust them then? I could have given more, could have helped save more people. If only I'd seen as clearly then as I see now. If only I'd been wiser. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. But I do ask myself, I've been asking myself preparing for this, what is it actually for, this money that I've got? You know, is it actually for me? Okay, so I do my tithe and then the rest of it, great, that's for me. Is that it? Or is it really for the kingdom of God? Apart from meeting my actual genuine needs, is that really why I've got it, this money? And I just sense God working on my heart afresh as I grapple with that question. And you know, all I want to do is to be fully faithful on this gift day and on every other day. And Lord, please help me where I'm blind. Help me where my ears are still waxed up. Too much to hear your voice clearly and see your heart fully. Help me where I'm still slow to trust you. Because I just want to be faithful. And like Matthew's parable of the talents, if you remember. It's not about whether I have one or two or five. That doesn't matter. It's not the amount. It's just about being faithful with whatever he's given me. It's all his, isn't it? It's all his money in the first place. I've got nothing except what he's given me, what the master has entrusted to me that belongs to him. That's all I've got. And my job is simply to be wise with it and to use it as he wants, whatever that means. I do also know, unlike the foolish servant in that story who didn't know, he's not a hard man, my Jesus. He's not a hard man. No, he's the most generous giver that you could ever find and he wants you and me to be just like him amen let's pray shall we father we thank you that in your grace and kindness you do come to us and you do unblock our ears and you do show us the glory of your truth and you do give us a heart like yours and you do show us the joy the joy of living like your son did And Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that you will help us so embrace your spirit that you can so work in us that we will be generous on every occasion, that we will abound in every kind of good work all the time, that we'll trust you and we'll see it work in practice. Yes, Lord, you're faithful, you meet our needs. And that with that confidence, we're able to be overflowingly generous like never before. Father, you know what we're like, you know our weakness, but Lord, I just pray, wherever we are today, take us forward from this place, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.com.